Welcome back to Bootability, a weekly interview series about the amazing ability people have to change our lives and the world if we're brave enough to tap into it. These are honest conversations with people of all walks of life, reflecting on their own bootability, what it looks like, how it feels, and how the philosophy of SGI Nichiren Buddhism, which is based on the practice of chanting Nam Myo Ho Renge Kyo, can be used to bring it out. I'm your host, Jihi Jolly. conversation of 2021, we're asking some big questions. Our guest today is designer and architect James Ludwig, who's vice president of global design and product engineering for Steelcase, the world's leading designer of office furniture. He's also been practicing SGI Nichiren Buddhism for a very long time. I reached out to him after listening to him speak on another podcast a few months ago about how our world is going to change in the next 20 years where he argued that we need to see ourselves and the things that we make and the ways we act as part of an ecosystem. Human beings don't act independently of each other or the world. We're interconnected. This is a core principle of Buddhism, which teaches that all life is interconnected. And that's why when we chant, we can not only change our own lives, but also positively impact our environment. Change in our own attitude and behavior can have such a tremendous impact on the people, places, and things in our environment. All that said, today we're exploring what design and Buddhism have in common, which is a lot, and how, at the beginning of a new year and new decade, we can think about designing our lives and solving big problems. Here's James. So, um, as you know, my name is James Ludwig, and uh, right now I'm in the bedroom uh, talking into a closet. Um, sitting in another steelcase chair that your husband probably doesn't have because it's our newest one. Um, and I'm in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where I've lived and practiced for 21 years. Thank you for taking the time to talk today. I have a lot of questions about both design and Buddhism, and I'm so happy that you're up for the challenge of trying to figure this out. But to share a little bit of context for today's episode, you know, I think a lot of people just don't necessarily know how to think about 2021 yet. Um, you know, some industries have been figuring it out all year long, um, but I think there's still so much to process from 2020. So um, I I want to kind of help people understand a little bit about design first, um, especially for those who, you know, don't come from a design background. And so one of the questions is if we can start with a with a story of any design that you're that you've worked on, that you're proud of, that you feel like illustrates this kind of process of living and creating with a Buddhist mindset? Uh, yeah, so first of all, I'm humbled uh, to be asked to be part of your podcast series. I think it's it's fantastic and really applaud your work. So thank you for that. Uh, so it's interesting. I get asked occasionally what I'm most proud of uh, in terms of the designs I've done or the things I've worked on. And I... It, I have to really go back and say I'm really most proud of the team that I've created and the people that I've um, been able to surround myself with and the culture of innovation that's come along with that. Um, because it's it's not a given um, to, that you can be successful at that. You can take a tremendous talent and put it together and it can still not really be able to to blossom. That's so interesting. I, it didn't occur to me that, that you might say people, but of course, putting people together is 
all of life in one sense. Before I before we dig into that, let's let's still understand a little bit more background. So, um, you know, we know your title, but I think many people may not know what that actually means day to day. So, could you just help us understand um, what your work actually is on a daily basis for someone who who doesn't have a design background to understand? Sure. Yeah. You know, I. I head up everything 3D for the company. I, I often describe my role as I'm the body language of Steelcase. So whether it's our spaces around the world where we uh, host customers, where it's whether it's places around the world where our employees create, uh, or it's the actual things that we sell, those things all go through my studio. I mean, fundamentally, my role is, you know, it can be anything from one day I'm just another creator on a project. And another day I'm a coach and a consultant for a team to help guide them through nasty problems or wicked problems, we like to call them. Um, but fundamentally, it's sort of observing human behavior uh, wherever work happens, distilling from those that behavior patterns, which generate insights and opportunities, and then taking those insights, which are often very abstract, and turning them into concrete, tangible things, which can solve people's problems, right? So that's kind of what design does at its essence. Hmm. Yeah, that's a great way to, to, to describe design, actually. Um, yeah, so we'll talk more about that as well. But um, let's also kind of get some some foundational knowledge about your journey with Buddhism. So, you know, this podcast is called Buddhability, and we say that these are just honest conversations with people who have tapped into their own Buddhability and what it's looked like for them, how it's felt for them. So I'd love to hear a little bit of the story of why you started practicing Buddhism, how, when, and sort of like what kept you going. Wow, that little one. <laughs> that little question. So um, I would say, you know, I was born and raised in a small farm town in Illinois, and I wanted to, uh, I wanted to kind of do stuff in a different stage than that. And so I, you know, left for college, incredibly optimistic and incredibly uh, hopeful that I would be able to really start a new life and expand my horizons beyond imagination, especially beyond the borders of a small town. What happened over the course of the first few years of being there was finding myself incredibly disillusioned and incredibly frustrated and at times full of anxiety and maybe all these other things that we talk about, uh, you know, they may or may not be typical for your 20s. They were for me, you know, my early, my late teens, early 20s. And I wasn't in a good spot at all. You know, I just developed destructive patterns and behaviors and things like that. So, uh, a, an old friend of mine uh, who we had clicked and clashed at, at very varying measures um, during a year or so had graduated and came back to uh, where I was bartending at the time at school to pay my last year. Uh, and um, she walked in and um, it was sort of this first kind of notion when, uh, uh, when I saw her again that said something's different and basically it was like hi um i'm worried about you you're not happy it was sort of like that and i'm like how did you know that <laughs> you know so uh after a long conversation even that night i really i really noticed a transformation in this this old friend and um and decided to give it a shot because i was in a pretty pretty unhappy spot mm. Oh, interesting. And then, so when you first started chanting Nam Myoho Renge Kyo, was it something 
easy for you? You were like, this is great. I'm in. Or was it was it uncomfortable? How did you sort of get into the rhythm of actually practicing Buddhism? So learning or getting into the rhythm of actually practicing Buddhism was for me kind of, it felt incredibly natural, sort of like, oh, this is what I've been telling people I've wanted. Why didn't they tell me sooner? Um, but I tried so many different things to try to find. Uh, I, I always did feel uh, a drive or a yearning for some philosophical or spiritual sort of foundation to the way I understood the, the world and my context within that and wasn't satisfied with the things that I'd come across. And the, the notion of how incredibly empowering and democratic this school of Buddhism um, is really appealed to me, especially as someone who was like, I have had to rely on myself for so long. Why not keep doing it in my spiritual life as well? It was then I met the community around and how supportive it is that it just, it just felt incredibly welcoming and natural for me. Mm, I see. And so um, around the same age, I guess, when you started practicing Buddhism, what, what were your plans career-wise? And how did you sort of get onto the, the path that landed you where you currently are? Yeah, so uh, my career path is a little interesting in the sense that I wanted to be an inventor growing up. And um, I was always trying to come up with new things and build things, even in my early teens. And uh, so I started to study engineering, which was a natural fit, especially from where the part of the country where I was from. I, no one knew what design was or even really talked about architecture. So I started out studying engineering, and, and it just didn't really click with me. The, I call it the, 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 at the time, especially the way it was taught, uh, it was about really trying to create certainty. And I still said, but I have so many questions. And so I literally read the course book cover to cover before dropping out of school and read this thing that said industrial design. And I said, that's what I've been telling everybody I wanted to do. Why didn't I find out about it sooner? So I transferred basically the next day. Can I, can I just ask you to um, define what industrial design is? Sure. So fundamentally, what you don't, you know, when you, when you hear the word industrial design, you think, oh, you go in and you do, you know, factories and, and, and um, you know, infrastructure. But actually, it's design for industry. So it's really about designing useful, purposeful things for users and consumers and businesses. And so that's the tangible result of it, what industrial design is called. Some people call it product design. Some people call it uh, design. Some people call it industrial design. But the degree itself is industrial design. Interesting. You know, it uh, immediately sparked, um, you know, how in, in Buddhism or I guess in Japanese, the definition of mission is to essentially to use one's life. It. That just what you said sparked that because it's I, I've been thinking a lot about what is the connection between designing objects and designing your life. Mm. And um, I do have questions for you about that. But yeah, sure. to, to be useful is just such an empowering thing. But to define what being useful is, is something that's so difficult for the average mm. person. Yeah. So um, so why don't we move into sort of how to think about those kinds of questions? Sure. You know, um, there are some sort of like core tenets um, mm -hmm. of, of what design actually is. If you could mm. walk us through what is design and what does the design process sort of require? What do the steps look like? Design is essentially a codified activity. It's a set of practices that actually lead to and hopefully outcomes. And, um, and it's not a science in the sense that if you run this experiment, you know, A to B and you don't change the variables, you'll always be successful. There's, there is a kind of, a, I call it, there is a kind of alchemy that goes along with that. And that's the, 
individuals making the decisions. That's the kind of cultural influences you have. And it's the mix of people and ideas. And also it's around curation. So, but the process of design in essence is pretty predictable. You know, it goes from, you know, we usually, we don't start with a blank sheet of paper. We actually start with people first. And, um, and you basically look for opportunities where there's friction and there's so much friction. And so those, when you observe people doing things, they do these things called thoughtless acts or things that they're unconsciously doing. And within those are often incredible opportunities to help them make their lives better. And so, you know, again, we'll observe people often we'll use video ethnography, uh, you know, where no one's around. So people really start to be themselves. Sometimes we'll be sitting in the same room or we'll be observing them up a di- from a distance. This idea of observing people, finding patterns in what they're doing. And from those patterns, you can, you can intersect them with all kinds of other things that you're trying to accomplish. And then we gain what we call insights, insights into human behavior, insights into the problems that they're either complaining about or don't yet know about. And then we take those insights and that's where people normally think design begins. When you put pen to paper and you actually make something tangible out of those insights. And from then on, it's right. You sort of, you sketch, you prototype, you iterate, you make many different versions. Sometimes you test them, um, you know, in, uh, in, in the wild, as I call it. And then you see how things are working. You continue to iterate. And then hopefully at the end of it, you've created some kind of value. Could, could I ask you to give me an example of um, whether it's it's one of, you know, like Steelcase's most exciting products or one that you particularly love, um, sort of what, what problem you're trying to solve and what actually came to be, just so we can visualize a little bit? Sure. One of the my favorite uh, examples of user-centered design uh, is actually quite a humble one. Uh, and that was really, we went in to help um, healthcare givers, caregivers, um, help reduce medical error was one of the problems that we had. So whether you give the wrong meds or you prescribe the wrong treatment or you mark the wrong knee, you know, these things we've all read about. And so we were working with a, a healthcare provider to understand how best to design space to actually support the providers so there would be less error. So as we went in and we did interviews and we were talking to um, the nurses on the station, we said, hey, you know, tell us a little bit about your data entry from your chart to the computer. And like, it's fine. It's fine. What I really have a problem with this is when I don't have time and I have to get these meds and I have to do this. We're like, yeah, that's cool. Do you want to, do you mind if we just watch you for a little bit? And they're like, it's fine. You know, everything's fine. And so they had these, you know, high performance chairs and these designed workstations and they literally we're leaning over piles of tubes and meds and things like that to see the monitor because they, it was so far away and, and having to lean back to be able to see the keyboard. And then, and it was like such a, it actually was such a tedious process that they weren't even aware of because they had bigger problems to solve in their minds, which was to keep people alive and help them get better. And when we went back and showed them the tape and we, we, we gave them just a simple solution, they were blown away that they could actually, that could actually be a way to remove friction from their already busy and important lives. Oh, interesting. So, so then why do we need to remove friction or sort of what are the costs associated with having friction in the first place on like such small friction? 
you know, pain points, friction, whatever you want to call it, these are these opportunities. And so as an example, I like to say you really only notice a really good ergonomic task chair when it's not working. Um, mm-hmm. right. When your back starts to hurt or your, you know, your, your glutes start to, to cramp up or your, your, you know, your some, there's something not right or you're cranky because your neck hurts. That's when you realize that, you know, that chair is not really an incredible chair. Um, not when you have it, when you have it, an amazing chair, it's almost like, yeah, every chair should be like this. So without that friction or without those pain points, there's really, that's really where you notice these opportunities to get better. Yeah, that, that is really interesting. I, so my, my next question is really about Buddhism and I'm already starting to see such similarities because, you know, in Buddhism, we chant to see things clearly, right? (laughs) Including the problems. So it feels very similar, but let me ask you, where do you see, uh, what do you see design and Buddhism having in common in your own experience or in your own practice? It's interesting when you think about the similarities, I'd say one in, you know, first and foremost, is they both put the human at the center of the question. Mm-hmm. And that, and it really starts there. And then in the, the, secondly, I might say, you know, they're both a practice in, in essence. And the practice of design is about making mistakes so that you learn something so that you can design it better for the next version. And that's why why human revolution and you know this idea of transformation through the practice of Buddhism really appealed to me because there's such a connection in the sense that right we're fundamentally every morning when I get in front of my altar and chant, I am iterating on myself, on myself and how I view the world and how I approach the world and how the world reacts to me, and I get feedback through cause and effect. Um, wow, that didn't work how do I create wisdom to be able to have the world react to me in a different way? That's, you know, that's really similar to the design process, right? You make a prototype, it fails. You build a prototype off of that. So I think that's, you know, a pretty cool connection for me. Yeah. I love that you said that actually, because 2020, I I've literally like have been telling myself to iterate on myself every week instead of trying to make these like tremendous changes in my personality or my orientation or, or what effort I'm putting in because, um, then disrespecting yourself when you don't see change quick enough can become so easy. It can slip through the slip in so easily. Do you know what I mean? Oh yeah. Especially if you're, if you're, you know, impatient for change or you have big goals and dreams, right? One other thing that I find really fascinating about both design and Buddhism is design really talks about seeing the everyday in new ways. That's what I do every day, right? I get Mm -hmm. up and I try to see my everyday in new ways. And it's the same thing when you ref- one refreshes oneself in the morning and then one reports back in the evening. You are basically looking to see your life, your everyday life in new ways to look for opportunities to redesign that and to iterate on that. Yeah, I was going to ask what are the sort of what are the most important things that you feel like you've come to learn from your Buddhist practice that apply to your work? So because my work involves um, much more than the design of things and the design of experiences and spaces. It really is about working with people. That's where I actually believe, okay, without a doubt, I believe, you know, Buddhism's helped me unlock and tap into my creativity in ways that I wouldn't have been. But that's because it's helped me sort of clean the mirror of, of myself and my life and also to be able to see things and problems and opportunities more clearly. 
at the same time, you know, the, I would say the single most, that big, the biggest benefit that I've gotten from practicing Buddhism in my own human revolution is to interact and work with people. You know, again, a lot of my role is around leadership, not just as a designer. And so I think, and if we, we know the best leaders are leaders who create followership, not who demand and wave, you know, just wave the flag and shout into the microphone. And that takes time and experience and some hard knocks and some bruises, you know, to really realize what can, what can I do to motivate and inspire and, and encourage. And it's so core to practicing Buddhism that applying those lessons to your daily life, um, you know, it's, it's, it's just a clear extension. For someone who's totally new to Buddhism, how would you like define what you mean by human revolution? You know, not to use Buddhist jargon, but for human revolution is really to me, uh, the shorthand for the inner transformation that one makes through a, you know, a diligent practice of Buddhism, a daily practice of Buddhism, that it's that, you know, I, we in design, we call it state A to state B. State A is who I am today. State B is, is who I will be and where I'm, what I'm designing towards. And our lives are like, like that too, right? And, and the goal, right, is not stagnation. The goal is, you know, advancing ourselves. And so I see that in the same way. Every day you're iterating. And that iterative process is what I would call human revolution. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah, that's a very clear way to put it. Um, so then, I, I mean, I assume because in the process of human revolution or inner transformation, um, breakthrough is one of the most important things, right? Like breaking through our self-imposed limitations, our doubts and so forth is so crucial. Mm. And I'm assuming that that process of breaking through is also inherent to design. It's not like we're going to solve the problem. Here's the solution. That was easy. Mm. Um, so I'd love to hear a little bit about, um, yeah, like in terms of innovating or, or solving a problem that hasn't been solved yet, um, what are the key elements of breaking through? And if you have any examples um, that you think we could learn from, feel free to share as well. Sure. It is, it's interesting. I have maybe a little unorthodox view to what it takes to create breakthroughs, whether it's breakthrough designs or, or um, breakthrough experiences, uh, that it really has three ingredients. One is curiosity, one is empathy, and the other is openness, which you can also call a vulnerability. Those might not kind of be sort of natural fits with the idea of breakthrough, which is like, you know, this energetic kind of, you know, forceful, powerful thing. I, I, I think that without those three ingredients, it, it's really hard to look freshly and clearly at something that we've been looking at in our case of us, our whole lives. And in case of a design, the course of an entire project or, or maybe even something that we use every day. So to me, those are really key, and I think they're super compatible because, again, it goes back to what I feel design is inherently a humanistic activity mm. uh, because it really, it's, we're, you know, in its best form, right? We, we, we see those TV shows, and I don't think that's what it is for me, but I think, I think really it's about how do you help people unlock their potential and how do you help people, again, you know, live better and be more effective and be themselves and find identity in the spaces that they work in and all those kinds of things. And because it's really, you know, everybody wants a sense of purpose. Everybody wants to feel a connectedness. Uh, we can call that mission. Um, and to me, that's really the goal. So everyone can experience that. You know, I also, um, 
really liked uh, what you said. I, I listened to the TED conversation that you sent me as well. And um, just kind of this idea of the now, the near and the far and how to how to think about the future, you know, because in Buddhism, cause and effect. Um, I mean, Buddhism is, it primarily concerns itself with the present, right? Mm -hmm. So what we do now impacts the future. But at the same time, it really encourages us to have a long-term vision for our lives and for the world. And doing those two things at the same time is really hard. So yeah. I would love to hear your take on um, how, you know, based on what's been happening in 2020 in your professional settings or even in your personal life, you have been thinking about kind of what you described as the now, the near and the far and yeah, what, what kind of viewpoint you're, you're applying to it to kind of figure out what action to be taking next. You know, it's interesting because this 2020 experience that we have all lived through has been like the grandest experiment, uh, you know, on virtual uh, learning, working, teaching, having friendships and relationships. And we, there's lots of learnings out of that. And at, at the same time, I like to call this the now normal, not the new normal. Because ultimately, right, we will, we will find ways forward and that's, that's exciting. So I, I like to break things down into the now, near and the far. And, you know, often it's, you know, it's like when you have little kids, like, well, I got this, this advice, you know, the days seem endless and the time goes fast. Um, the years go fast. And it was all true. And uh, at the same time, I, I often will talk to my, my team and the leaders on my team. You know, you, we, should, we should try to work with the intensity as today's the last day of the project, but keep our eyes on the long game. And that applies to so many different things, whether it's, you know, how we live our lives, right? Try to squeeze every moment out of today. But, you know, that impatience is fine, you know, for today. But then also, what's my future vision? Where do I want to be? And how am I working towards that? I think those things are very, you know, uh, almost synonymous. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. It's just so much easier said than done. I'm just thinking of like a person <laughs> who's, you know, really consumed with, um, I mean, some of us, you know, unearthed problems in our lives this year that like we have never had to confront before and are still sort of in the thick of that and solving a problem. And I think when a human being goes into the mode of like trying to survive or manage a very big problem, it's so difficult to think about their future self or the future yeah. world or their future community. Um, is there anything like have there any been any moments that I, I imagine you or your team had to sort of experience that where you're like we're up against you know solving this right now and um it's hindering our ability to really be able to design for the future does that question make sense i'm yeah. just imagining like a pressure bound design situation because that's yeah, sort of sure. what our lives kind of feel like yeah so I mean, some some of the best moments come out of the pressure that either schedule or cost or or some other external force are, are exerting on 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 a problem. And I mean, <clears throat> I'm super proud of this chair that we we launched um, in the last couple of years. It's called Silk, and it was really the first of this kind of space that I was really really hopeful I would get to someday, which is designing something that's more like an organism than a machine. And, you know, without getting abstract, it was like this idea of how, how can you use it in a way that's it's so beneficial without causing you to think about it or really needing to learn about it? How does it participate with you? So we were, you know, I had a very small team working on that uh, for 
you know, less than a year, I'd peeled them out of their jobs and we worked really kind of very intensely on it. And we came to a point where we'd solve the problem and we wanted to create, basically replace all this machinery underneath the chair with something similar to uh, amputee sprinter foot made out of carbon fiber. So as we were, we, we'd solved the problem in carbon fiber. And uh, so we had this amazing technical solution, but it came back and it was 10x basically what we felt the, the, the part needed to cost. Right? It was 10 times what we thought we would able, be able to spend on making that because of the way carbon fiber is produced and made. So, um, yeah, I went back to my engineers and said, ah, it's fantastic. It's amazing. Everybody loves it. It's really great. You got to do it again. <laughs> and and uh, I mean, we that sort of heat and pressure, um, they came up with a proprietary process and a proprietary material. And, and and patented something that performed like the original design did in a material that was able to for us to create a commercially successful product. And you know it would have been easy at that point to go, it's not possible, nobody's ever done it. But uh, that was one where I really saw how inspired people with determination and clarity can really overcome the kind of hardships that come along with it. And we have a saying that says, design's not for the fate of heart. Um, <laughs> and that, that really applies to product development, but... Uh, that's yeah. one of those experiences that I was really encouraged by. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, that uh, kind of goes back to something you shared earlier that I wanted to ask about. Well, I guess right in the beginning when I asked if there's a design that you're particularly proud of and you actually said it's the team. So can we talk a little bit more about that sort of um, uh, like how did you approach uh, creating the team? What did you have to change about yourself in order to make it work? Did your Buddhist practice play any kind of role in that process? So with respect to my own development and, de and the development of the teams around me or the team that I've been able to create, um, right, I think they were, it was pretty much hand in hand. I, I came late to the table uh, of having a nurturing gene. In fact, I, you know, I, <laughs> I was, I was um, perhaps early in my career, um, uh, you know, made many, many, many mistakes and would, would not have been able to create the group of people in the atmosphere and the climate that I've been able to create now. But those were because of those sometimes painful mistakes that I'd made um, early on. But it really c comes down to that idea of caring for each other, having empathy, uh, spending time, like I said, putting yourself in someone else's shoes and asking what kind of challenge they have. I, I do think that I call it, say design is a full contact sport, but at fun at the, you know, you definitely have to play hard. Uh, but I do believe that at the end of the day, the, the biggest advances we've made is because people are willing to, to be supportive and, and empathetic and really, really still demand excellence. That's a really interesting kind of alchemy. That didn't really come natural to me. And that had to come from many, many um, experiences I've had through my practice and that inner transformation that I've talked about, um, you know, and because it is a practice, there's never a point where I can say I've achieved, you know, mastery of this one, uh, like many things, um, to continue to practice, to say, how can I impact people in a positive way? How can I help them again, you know, sort of have a sense of mission and purpose? How can I connect their identities with their work in very individual ways? It takes a lot of thought and a lot of work, but it's always, it's always worth it. Mm. Yeah, you know, um, it makes me think 
uh, like from the perspective of someone who might be listening, who maybe is like early in their career um, or even potentially, you know, achieving some sort of success, um, but can't seem to surround themselves with the, the people that can take their idea, you know, to the next level. I think that no matter what kind of work you do, that is at the end of the day, if you aren't able to work with people or find the right people to work with, doesn't matter how talented you are. <laughs> How great your you just said are. it. You totally just said it. Yeah. So, but but if we can kind of unpack that a little bit more, particularly from a Buddhist perspective, what does that take? Like, what what kind of person do you have to be, or what kind of action do you have to take in order to go from someone who's talented and visionary and loves to work alone to someone who can like really uh, work with other people and and do something bigger. Uh, yeah. So the, what, what's, what's been clear for me for many years now is that the model of the singular genius working alone with a brilliant idea, um, that model may be, may work for, for some. Um, I, I have a firm belief that being able to have the idea is actually the easiest part. It's being able to rally a group of also talented brilliant people to adopt an idea and to get behind it and to push for it. I mean, I get to stand on stage and introduce a chair, but there's 50 people working on it, each one of them brilliant and successful. And, you know, and to, to, for them to be a part of that, for them to feel connected to that so that they can bring their best. There is that took some pretty profound development on my part. One of the most profound lessons I had to learn was, not all recipes cook with more heat and pressure. And, you know, there's just sometimes that stepping back and giving space for other people and their ideas and their contributions, even if it might not appear to be the most direct route, is really was really the way I feel that in our team environment, people felt respected, they feel seen, and they feel valued. And that's the way you get the most from people and I don't mean that in a selfish way. That's the way they unlock their own potential. And when they do that, they're happier. And so, and right, I still make mistakes every day um, along those lines. But I would say what I have learned in 2020 is that most of my calls aren't about production or projects. It's really about how are you? How are you doing? What do you, do you have what you need? And again, I feel like that has been the, most profound leadership principle I've learned. It's interesting, you know, I've mentioned this before that I am so attracted to the idea that the, that the lotus blossoms in the muddy swamp. And that's kind of how I've always viewed, you know, sort of getting in there and getting messy, whether it's my career or otherwise. Like these things are messy, right? Sometimes human relationships are messy. Sometimes you say the wrong thing. Sometimes it's taken the wrong way. Sometimes people are under pressure and they bring their, they don't bring their best selves. And so what do you do? But it's in that process that is really like you're enable, you're, you're able to do amazing things together with, because of that. I see that as, as, as similar to our practice of Buddhism, right? We, this is different than many kinds of Buddhism, right? Because we fully engage into society. We fully embrace our dreams. We, we're not in a state of denial. We're in a state of yes and, not, you know, but, right? So I think that's what's so empowering and exciting about, about this. And that's really mapped out, you know, with how I like to approach life, which is, you know, let's, let's go. 
Yeah, <laughs> I love that. So when you think about, you just mentioned, you know, like this Buddhism is about going for your dreams, but I never really asked, like, what is your dream or what excites you about the future? Why are, like, what are you looking towards personally that you hope to do or you hope to see happen in the world um, that's keeping you motivated? It's, it's kind of interesting, right? So I'm like 35 years into my career and I feel like I haven't peaked yet. You know, I'm, you know, I've got all this experience and what I've learned is that I value curiosity more than knowledge in people. And so it's one of those traits that I feel makes people so much, so attractive, right? And when people are curious and then if, you know, even when they've had success or not, whether they've had, whether they know a bunch of stuff or not, like curiosity is really, to me, it's, it's like the, it's, it's the ingredient. So when I think of, of myself and my own dreams, people will say, you know, I, first of all, I can't talk about things I'm working on because they're going to come out in a few years. So, but I can honestly say the thing I'm always most excited about is the next problem I get to work on. And I think mm -hmm. that's an approach to life, right? And I think you can cultivate that. I don't think it has to be naturally in, you know, born um, when people talk about people cultivating or, or extinguishing their creativity. The same thing can be said of how one approaches life, whether it's, uh, you know, optimistically or not. And I had to kind of relearn that. Like I said, in my 20s, I, I, I learned how to be cynical, arrogant and insular, you know, pretty quickly going from a very optimistic, open, bubbly farm town kid. What happened? You know, life, life and my collision with reality. But if you untangle that and you know, say what happened during that time? You know, how much of that was me? How much of that can I change? And the answer is all of it, right? Wow. So I, I love the way that you put that, but what was the alternative? Because I mm. mean, I feel like what you just described is how a lot of 20 year olds today feel and yeah. they don't even know what the options are, like that they can right. be a different kind of person. Right. So when you're in that state, you know, whatever time in your life it is, but I was in my early 20s, you don't know what the other options are, right? You think this is the way it's going to be and it's just going to get, I'm just going to get older and it's going to get tougher. I, you know, that's why I was so attracted to saying, somebody saying, hey, you know, if you practice this Buddhism, you can actually transform your life. And here's some really tangible ways you can do it. You don't like, you don't like the way your relationship is with your boss? Chant about it. You don't like the way your relationship is with, you know, your coworkers? Chant about it. And I did all of those a lot and I could immediately feel the impact on a daily basis like we talked about, live intensely today and play the long game. I immediately saw, wow, I won today. And that played into my long game, my, my long-term thing, which is I wanted a happy family. I wanted to be an optimistic, you know, a dude that people, you know, like to be around. I wanted to actually solve big, wicked problems on a global scale. Like these were things, these were real things I, I thought in my head. Yeah. That just sets up such a practical vision, I think, for people who are still sort of thinking like, do I need to chant? What would I chant for kind of thing? Right, yeah. Um, which leads me into the this, you know, what advice, what advice would you give to someone who feels like they haven't, you know, whether they want to be a designer or something completely different, but who feels like they haven't quite tapped into their full potential yet and mm. they're exploring um, chanting as possibly a way to do so? Mm. Yeah, what would you tell them? It's funny. I was in Los Angeles with a longtime friend and collaborator, an architect, and he has a little sign in his studio and it says, think like a designer, don't act like one. So I, I, I loved that. Um, 
I loved it for a couple of reasons. One is that what does it mean to think like a designer? And that re again, you go back and say, uh, I'm going to look at every problem I encounter with a spirit of possibility that it can be iterated on and solved in some way with curiosity, empathy, and openness. I'm going to make myself vulnerable by sometimes, you know, externalizing crazy ideas, knowing, you know, hoping that the I that the response won't come back, that won't work, or that's stupid right? You create these cultures where those things don't happen and we can cultivate that in our own lives as well. This is why I think everybody is a designer. You're designing your life. You're designing your experiences. You're designing your future, your family. You're designing your dinner. You're designing, I mean, you know, we design these experiences without even knowing that we're actually consciously making choices. And intent is really the, the initial step of designing something. And so if we live our lives with intent, like I want to be happy, that's an intent. So I, th you, you approach it in the same open, curious, vulnerable way. That's why, I, that's why I tell people try, try something, go in, you know, and try it with that kind of openness, not this won't work. Think like a designer. How might we use this to become absolutely happy? Yeah. So you just mentioned um, vulnerability a few times, actually. And so I wanted to circle back to something that you had mentioned when we first spoke on the phone, which really stayed with me, which is that there is a difference between being bold and courageous. And this is something that you've been thinking about lately. Hmm. Could you share a little bit about about that thought? Sure. Um, sometimes I'll, I, and I've been thinking lately about the difference between bold and courageous and you know, again, I was, I benefited so much from encouragement from my mentor early on in my practice and career even to be bold, right? And what that meant. And yeah, sometimes I was, I was bold and I broke things. And, um, right. And because there's a set, there's sort of a forcefulness and an assertiveness and an insistence about that word. Now, I know they show up as synonyms often in the dictionary or the uh, thesaurus, if people remember what that is. But I find that curiosity, uh, courageousness actually embraces the idea of vulnerability because, again, I would equate vulnerability or even curiosity with boldness, but I would with courageousness because you have to take a risk. You have to go out on a limb in a way that isn't assertive and insistent. It's simply open. And I think that's why sometimes boldness is easy where courageousness is hard. I think they're both necessary, but I do think it's worth just teasing them apart a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I had never thought of it that way, which is really interesting. I mean, at the beginning of the year, we all like to or think we should set some goals, mm. <laughs> create some resolutions or think about our lives with fresh eyes. But um, yeah, at the beginning of the year, I mean, as a Buddhist and as a designer, like how how do you set intentions like for the the beginning of a project or the beginning of a decade or the beginning of a year uh, mm. like yourself one of the interesting things about uh, having some experience uh now in my career is how i remain inspired and how i remain determined to like make progress or you know even have dreams right um of, you know uh someone important to us passed away you know a couple months ago during this uh, crisis and he taught me um, he was an older surgeon and he said, I hope to die with many unfinished projects. And he also said something like, um, 
you know, I'll feel old when I have more memories than dreams. Those things stuck with me so profoundly and I feel the same way, right? So as I go into a new decade or a new year, whether it's, you know, my career or my life, you know, I'm really, I really want to have a fresh determination that I'm, I'm kind of starting from zero, starting from scratch. And to be as bold in my dreams and courageous in my openness to go after them, uh, I think is really key. You know, one of the things I loved most about the the podcast I listened to about the next 20 years is just your your take on um, harmony with like the environment and what kind of sort of ecosystem we want to exist in. And that is an aspect of design. I mean, honestly, a design of economies, design of the world, design of products, like every kind of design could benefit from that type of thinking. And I think right. people finally feel that way. So if you could sort of explain that, like, what did you what did you mean by that? Because it might be a useful vision of design as we design our own lives or own communities for everyone to be able to hold on to. And it feels very Buddhist to me. One of the things that's really helped me, I would say, in my own development is is not seeing myself as insular or isolated. You know, so I think in pictures, sometimes metaphors, but the idea that we're actually connected underneath the waterline, these islands as human beings, I just absolutely um, has had a big impact on, on me. Also, this Buddhist principle that we are inseparable from our environment, and our environment also includes the people around us and, uh, and, you know, and our actual physical environment. Those two things have actually kind of helped shape a vision for me around how we actually should stop living in conflict. We should stop designing systems, economies, cities, products that are in conflict with the, our environment. And um, that really has led to, uh, you know, how one of the reasons why I love working where I work is because of our commitment. We went carbon neutral this year. We've declared great um, goals. Those things are on an institutional level, but at an individual level that everyone feels a sense of purpose to connect to that. I just think that it's, it's you just go as the more I learn about life, the more I learn about science, the more I learn about design and, you know, what it means to lead people, the more it sounds like it's Buddhism. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I'm convinced. <laughs> right? So, yeah. I mean, yeah. it's just like, okay, I don't see any, it, it's not going in a direction of divergence, it's going in a direction of convergence, right? For the individual, what advice would you give to somebody who is like, I'm ready to view myself as the designer of my life? And um, like, what should I keep in mind as I as I design what my dreams or my goals really are? I mean, anyone who's sitting around thinking about what they want 2021 to, to look like might, I would just say, start thinking like a designer and ask yourself questions. How might I or how might we? And if you start there and then really give yourself the credit of curiosity, empathy, and openness as well, right? That's, that's, it's, we're, it's so hard sometimes to give that to ourselves, to be generous to ourselves. If you're thinking like a designer, though, you'd have to say, I am the designer and the user and you'd, then, then you can really get down to brass tacks and say, okay, what are the things I'm happy with? What are the things I want to change? And all those things you want to change, that's, those are just opportunities to say, how do I want to redesign this? And, you know, we can choose that it's within our control. And I think that's where you'd say, that's where the prototyping starts. After our conversation, James reached out to share that there's one more thought he wanted to offer, which I'll summarize here. 
Design and architecture, and one could say life, are about addressing both the small and the large at the same time. Day to day, we have to solve problems, and as he explained, remove friction that creates pain. But at the same time, we're trying to achieve the impossible or unprecedented. That's what innovation is all about, paying attention to the small problems while creating things that have never been created before, and asking audacious questions like, how might we create equitable communities? How might we create livable cities that are human-centric? How might we address climate change through the things that we make and build? This is also what Buddhism teaches. Every day, we chant to tap into our Buddhability and bring our best self to the day in front of us. And over time, we can completely change our lives and our communities by doing this consistently. Chanting is a way to renew and refresh ourselves and create the conditions for innovation to happen. Some problems aren't solved by staring at them, he explained. We have to get away, take a walk in the woods. For our lives, chanting works similarly. We can refresh ourselves and create the conditions for wisdom to emerge and innovation to happen. So, if you're thinking about how to approach this new year, try thinking like a designer and see what happens. And if you're curious about chanting, you can check out our How to Chant video at bootability.org and sign up for our newsletter for a weekly dose of insight and encouragement on how to tap into your own bootability. As always, if you enjoyed the show and want to learn more, you can use the connect form on the site or reach out to me about the podcast at podcast at sgi-usa.org. That's it for today, and we'll see you next week. Thank you.